location. It's an important concept. And I've spoken about this before, but I thought this year really proves the point that location growth is really, really important when it comes to real estate. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, location growth. Yes, we're going to dig into the idea that location matters in real estate. We've all heard the little phrase, location, 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 but let's break it down. As property investors, there are different locations. So we're going to have a chat about that. Welcome back. If you're a regular listener, thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. And of course, I hope you are taking some tips away when it comes to real estate investment. If it's your first time tuning in, welcome aboard. Uh, You are now an urban property investor. So thank you for, yes, choosing me and listening to real estate advice from this podcast. Hey, I tell you what, uh, play the show in double speed if it's your first time tuning in. Uh, that's how we do it around here. We go quick because my podcast can absolutely go way too long. So you double speed it. You just go onto your iPhone and press double speed and voila, there I am talking twice as fast. Hey, it's official. Rafi bashed. Cashew. It happened. Now, for any of my regular listeners, maybe you remember, I had a dog, Hannah the dog, and Hannah the dog passed away. And before Hannah the dog passed away, when she was an old cripply dog lady, Cashew from the neighboring street bashed her. And so I said to myself, we're getting a new sheriff. And I chose a bull terrier. Yes, a little bull terrier. And of course, bull terriers are not fighting dogs despite their ugly look. But uh, if you walk down the street with a bull terrier, no one wants to mess with you because they look ugly and fearsome. Well, it finally happened. Walk past Cashew's house. Guess what happened? Cashew came out and uh, was barking. Thought we were trying to invade his home. We weren't doing anything like that. We were just walking down the street. Cashew launches at Rafi. Whoa. Rafi just sort of, it's like before a UFC fight and you've got two fighters and uh, they start, you know, one of them starts sort of going a bit hypo. Well, this is what happened. Cashew, which is, he's like a little, I don't know what you would call him, a little sort of brown, kind of like half golden retriever, half something else. Anyway, he launches at Rafi, tries to bite his face. Whoa. Rafi just sort of laughed at him and then just one big gollop smashed him. And then Cashew ran back in the house yelping. So there it is. Redemption for uh, Hannah, the dog, by my new dog, the Gopnik himself, Rafi. So that's... My life at the moment, I hope your life is doing well. But uh, hey, that's three minutes you're never going to get back in your life, isn't it? 
Today, I wanted to dig into location growth. I have spoken about location growth before, and I think at the moment, it's a very good reminder to talk about location growth because local factors determine the rate of capital growth in real estate. Local factors. Macro factors uh, really determine the health of growth. Local factors determine the rate of growth. And of course, in my Forex growth plan, I've got kind of a few quadrants, if you like. I've got deal growth, which is really nice and simple. You can make money doing a deal. Everyone can make money doing a deal, buying well, adding some value, all that kind of fun stuff. Of course, I've got macro growth as a massive growth driver, the health of growth of an economy, uh, pie economics, population infrastructure, and of course, jobs. Uh, and I've also got really emotional growth, behavioral growth, or predictive growth. I've got three naming conventions for the one concept, which is, of course, if you've got a really good property and it's got a view or it's, uh, you know, next door to the beach or whatever it may be, it's going to create uh, emotion. And what drives capital growth in real estate ultimately is people paying more for real estate because of that emotional anchor. So if real estate has an anchor that creates emotion, you get capital growth. But location, it's an important concept. And I've spoken about this before, but I thought this year really proves the point that location growth is really, really important when it comes to real estate. And if we want to break it down, Really, when it comes to marketplaces, locations can be divided into five markets. Five. Yes, there are five location markets. Does that sound confusing? Because often when we think about markets, we're thinking about the Brisbane market or the Queensland market or the Melbourne market. If I was to break down the Melbourne market, there are actually 12 different locations in Melbourne by geography. In those 12 locations, there are five localized different styles of market. And of course, there is no right or wrong. It's just they are different. And I want to go through the difference in marketplaces so you can understand how real estate links to those areas. Now, again, uh, there is some real fundamentals to different places. So I'm going to start with the first one. The first marketplace is known as aspirational suburbia. It's a really, really important place for capital growth sometimes also known as the aspirational middle ring to real estate. Remember, there is the inner ring, the middle ring, and the outer ring. They are all different pockets of real estate investment. The middle ring, i.e. suburbs, say, 15 to 35 kilometers to the CBD, depending on how big a city is, is typically where you get families with a bit of wealth looking to live because it's close to the infrastructure efficiency of that particular city. The middle ring is one of the best 
places to own real estate and it's driven off aspiration. Remember, when it comes to real estate, there are really four uh, areas where money is linked to location or four dynamics where money is linked to location. There is the prestige market, which is obviously multi-million dollar real estate. There is the aspirational market, whereby real estate ends up becoming even more aspirational or even can drop into the prestige section of the market. There is the affordable pocket of real estate, affordability suburbs, They can be broken down into two groups, affordable and basically no choice and affordable and highly livable. In other words, there's still a lot of emotional reasons why people would want to buy there. Even though it's affordable today, it's highly livable and will then become eventually aspirational. Then there are suburbs whereby areas, the area itself has a lot of disinvestment. It's really the broke end of town. So if you were thinking of the Monopoly board, and I've done an episode on the Monopoly board, you're just thinking, wow, you've got four pockets to it. You've got Prestige, where Mayfair and Park Lane are. You've then got Aspirational, where Trafalgar sits. Then you've got are the sort of purples and oranges that's basically affordable and then you've got you know old kent road and that's the broke end of town no one ever wins monopoly buying old kent road so that's how it works and so the first marketplace when it comes to choosing a location is what is known as aspirational middle ring or aspiration suburbia or an aspirational marketplace. It's as simple as that. If you were on the Monopoly board, you'd be buying the uh, sort of yellows, if you like. So what drives a suburb to become aspirational? Why do people want to pay more for a neighborhood? Well, this is where you need to understand the five belts of an aspirational marketplace. The first belt is the sand belt, which is really, really simple. It's uh, also known as the blue belt, if you like. Water. Water equals profits when it comes to real estate investment. If you've got a suburban neighborhood and it's close to water, it's going to tick a lot of boxes now and surely down the track. Remember, Australia will be over 40 million people by 2060 some even say 2050 and that's a lot of people trying to use waterways so if you own real estate close to that the sand belt you're going to do really 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 well and again if I was to go down to Bayside Melbourne there's some great suburbs Hampton Hyatt Sandringham beautiful places beautiful places and they're very aspirational places the sand belt is what those suburbs really represent also 
when it comes to aspirational marketplaces, you've got in the middle ring quite often school belts. Some cultures just love schools. And for that reason, suburbs which have really, really good scoring schools, of course, schools carry a score. If they're highly ranked as education places, the suburb gets this kind of effect of smart economics. And as such, you get this affluent level of people wanting to all live in the school belt zone to have the opportunity to send their kids to that school. Usually it is also a public school. So paying for the school fees is not a major thing. And all of a sudden you get people spending more on their uh, properties to live closer to the schools. It also links to private schools where, of course, there is the ability for children to go to very well-to-do schools and do it comfortably. So school belts are a massive driver of aspirational suburbia or the aspirational middle ring. The next belt is the green belt, and I've talked about this before. Green space is worth money. Parks, bushlands, these equal profits. And again, for a lot of cities, they protect their green space and their bushland and will do forever. Now, one of the big reasons is also air quality. Cities need certain levels of air quality, so they protect bushland and also green space to create better air quality for people. It's kind of a macro reason. At a localized level, it's just pleasant to go to the park or go for a bushwalk. And so from a real estate investment point of view, aspirational suburbia, absolute awesome place to invest. Cultural belts are also huge drivers of an aspirational marketplace. Cultural belts could be include, uh, you know, any type of culture that resonates with an area. If you think about a surf beach in a major aspirational market in Sydney, you could have Bondi or Manly. They attract the culture of people wanting to live close to that surf culture. It could be the Australian Chinese community here in Sydney, Chatswood very aspirational place if your background is Chinese. Uh, and of course, that's how it works. If you get more of one group wanting to live in a certain pocket, whether they're surfers down at Bondi or Australian Chinese at Chatswood, the point is if more aspirational people from that identify as one culture want to live in one pocket then you get this kind of capital growth effect from the real estate. So the belts are really, really important. And the final belt is education and medical. Again, education and medical in this context is universities and hospitals. For a lot of uh, the aspirational part of the world, they want to live close to these uh, dynamics. They want to be close to the hospital, close to the university systems. And they provide, again, this 
concept of aspiration. And, uh, you know, if you look at some of the major universities in Sydney, University of Sydney, you know, Macquarie University, um, you know, you've got uh, them located in really what we would call aspirational suburbs. So, again, um, that's how it works. So, if you want to choose a marketplace to invest as a location, a location market. Remember the idea of growth is local factors determine the rate of growth, macro factors determine the health of growth. At a local level, a very good way to invest is to use the aspirational uh, marketplaces to succeed. Now, I'm a big believer in buying in aspirational suburbs. I'm also a believer in buying in affordable and livable suburbs that will then become aspirational, i.e. the ripple effect, the next suburb effect. So certainly pockets I'm looking at at the moment where they're going to be the next suburb because they've got a sand belt, they've got a green belt, they've got school belts. They are just yet to become hugely expensive that's what we want we want to choose a location where the local factors will determine the rate of growth local factors sand belt school belt education medical precincts cultural belts uh, and so forth so really really good way to think about marketplaces and again like when we break down locations, this is the sport we're doing today. Because in all, if I was to analyze, I don't know, the Melbourne market, you could be looking at the prestige housing market, you could be looking at the outer land market, you could be looking at the unit market, you could be looking at the townhouse market. So it's a bit confusing. And so I always break down location first. Location determines the rate of growth. This is why it's really, really important when it comes to being a property investor to think about location. I would put it as one of the most important things you could ever do. Uh, more important than, for example, buying a property and getting a $30,000 discount or a $50,000 discount. Uh, that's maybe a good mathematical equation, but if it's in a place which sucks which is full of disinvestment that's never going to become aspirational what's the point uh i'd prefer to pay more for a property in a better market at a location level to get myself success from real estate so the next uh location when it comes to a location growth strategy is what we would often call oligolopy marketplaces. Oligolopies. Yes, I have mentioned this before. And maybe this feels like, I don't know, you're turning back the clock and we're repeating. But I need to have this conversation because I don't know if I feel like I've done it well in the past and I feel like this is really, really interesting information when you really break it down. And I've spent my whole life learning this and being successful as a property investor. Oligolopy markets. Now, an oligolopy is just the concept that the seller is in charge and never loses market share. 
if you were to think about supermarkets, and I've mentioned this before here in Australia, Coles, Woolworths, IGA, they're an oligolopy. They really do not lose market share. There's no such thing really as people going to the local supermarket. It no longer exists. Australia is not 7,000 supermarkets. It is really three to four major supermarket chains, probably including Aldi. And so the seller, the supermarket, is really the dictator of the price. Really, there is... Uh, no competition to affect them when it comes to price. They have pricing power and can do what they want. Now, again, some suburbs are basically oligolopies. They have discretionary wealth within those neighbourhoods. They, if they sell a property... They, come, they dictate the price more so than if there is, um, there's always more people wanting to buy in those suburbs than stock ever being sold. So the seller is always in charge. And generally what happens when a suburb becomes an oligolopy, it becomes a very tightly held place. It's almost difficult to get in and you're going to have to pay the privilege to be part of that location as a buyer. Now, again, for a lot of people, they go, well, why would I pay for the privilege to buy something? Well, once you own it, you become the master and you become the person in charge of the neighborhood and the price of real estate. So you control a very, very, very secure asset. And again, uh, quite often we refer to many suburbs as NIMBY suburbs, where there's no development, where there's not ever going to happen in a suburb's backyard. NIMBY, not in my backyard. When you own real estate as a NIMBY, you really control the market because it's very hard for people to get into that market and if they want to participate in that location as a market, they got to pay the piper, they got to pay the price. So you might have to pay the price to get in, but eventually that also is a reward for you because your neighbours will always be selling at a much more... Uh, you know, dynamic price into the future because of the uniqueness of the location. It's usually limited by supply. Usually NIMBY suburbs are quite character in their look and feel. They have different properties from many years ago. Um, there's a lot of nice architecture in those oligolopy NIMBY-like suburbs and they tend to do very, very well. Again, if you can afford them, great property places to invest. And today, the ratio of, in fact, looking at the apartment market in those suburbs can also warrant success if it's the right apartment or townhouse. Why? Tightly held. Very, very good marketplaces. The next location that I think is really important to consider is 
if you're in an investor, you could consider a monopolized market, a monopoly-based marketplace. Now, monopoly is obviously a board game, but it also is the concept that a suburb is built out and you get the monopoly effect. When land disappears, it goes up in value. And so quite often what you'll find is a suburb or location is going through the monopoly effect. It's going through no more available levels of construction or build and then all of a sudden you get this effect where that location reaches a monopoly level. Everything's basically uh, sold out and there is no more supply and you really get this kind of effect where prices are going to go up because land has now run out. What I like looking for in real estate, and I do this a lot, is really the next place to run out of land to get the monopoly effect. And I think it's a brilliant way to make money because once a suburb gets monopolized, it goes up in value. And whilst it's not monopolized, it's still good value. And so there's a, I guess, effect where you've got to weigh up, well, will that area be monopolized in the next year, two or three? Or will that area be monopolized in the next 30, 40, 50 years? It's a big difference. And again, the monopoly effect is a awesome way to make money. I love doing it in infill locations, locations where you basically uh, see a diminishing level of availability of, of land uh, and then it compresses and compresses and boom, monopoly. It's all monopolized. There is nothing left. Uh, when land runs out, it goes up in value. So from a location point of view, we've been through aspirational, we've been through oligopolies, we've been through monopolies, and of course there are others. Really the opposite to a monopoly-based marketplace is what we refer to as a competition market. A competition location. The market or the local market is driven generally by price. Price is really the only differential in a competition marketplace. In other words, there is no sand belt, there is no cultural belt, there is no school belt, there is no educational medical belt, there is no green belt, there is no oligopoly, there is no monopoly. So what is left is just the good old-fashioned competition. Now, quite often for property investors, they will enter competition marketplaces because of budgets. And here in Australia, it's very common to go to, for example, areas that are sprawling further and further and further. And really, um, there is a level of, in those areas, homogenous housing being created. And so it's very common for property investors to go to competition marketplaces. 
Again, competition marketplaces are a bit of a double-edged sword. If you get it wrong, uh, you're basically really subject to the macro market, the health of the market, because really the only difference between your property and the one next door is going to be price. However, in competition marketplaces where price is really why people are going there, you see it driven off the back of population growth. So more people moving to those neighborhoods because of affordability. Remember, there's a difference between affordability and affordable lifestyle. So if we are going to a competition marketplace, really what we'd want to do is find the best lifestyle precincts in that competition marketplace to elevate ourselves above the competition. And again, really what we're trying to do is find something that's interesting to the market, that is unique, that is different, but stands out from the crowd so you're not part of the overall competition. So competition marketplaces are marketplaces where you really got to look at a local level and then at a street level and then at a property level to make sure that you're doing something that is going to rocket into the future. The practicality is a lot of property investors need to buy in competition marketplaces. There's no right or wrong. You've just got to do it right. Uh, Well, that didn't come out well, did it? There's no right or wrong. you just got to do it right. It's actually, yes, there is a wrong. And yes, there is a right. And you want to do it right. You don't want to do it wrong. Uh, That sounds better, I think. I don't know. I don't know. That came out all weird. But of course, like some of the best ways to think about buying in a competition market is community. If you are going to a new area where competition is rife, there's uh, tons of houses being built, you want a really good localized community. You actually want to take the concept of a monopoly and put it into the competition marketplaces or uh, the concept of aspiration and put it into that competition marketplace. So again, like aspirational markets can be, for example, with a sand belt, with a beach, you know, the house price is going to be well over probably one and a half million dollars, probably closer to three. Uh, So for many property investors, that's not a solution to their problem becoming an investor. So what you do is you go to competition marketplaces and then you take the approach of what has worked in other locations. In other locations, uh, buying in the neighborhood that's being built out next has worked. So uh, I'm going to do that in this competition marketplace. I'm going to make the best analysis of what next for that area. And again, um, it's just the way, obviously, real estate works from a location point of view. Population growth corridors, you may look at a competition marketplace and go, well, this one's the next to fill out and fill up with people so it is closer to the monopoly effect than, uh, for example, the next subdivision five kilometers down the road, which is going to take 25 years to fill up. So that is the concept, all right? 
And so it's a, it's a very good concept to understand. We want to be closer to monopoly than further away if we can afford it in our budget. And the final location marketplace, if you like, is what we would refer to as emerging marketplaces driven by gentrification or gentrification markets. Yes, as time goes on, places improve Gentry is just the concept that wealthier people are drawn to the suburb and obviously that wealth impacts property values. So if we can follow the gentry, we're going to make money out of real estate. It's going to emerge as we own it. And uh, I'm a big fan of gentrification marketplaces, suburbs which are just going to improve over time and going to end up being highly successful later on in my property journey. Remember, as a property investor, you have to go and find a problem. A problem for a suburb is it's an ugly duckling. The solution to that ugliness is eventually gentrification and the gentry coming to the suburb. So if you buy the gentry, i.e. something that is fully gentrified, you're obviously going to pay more than something which is ungentrified. When it comes to understanding gentrification, it's really important that something's going to drive the gentrification. Usually drivers of gentrification are things like location, things like retail, things like infrastructure. They drive change. And again, if an area is a great place to live, work and play, but it's underpriced, it's going to gentrify. And uh, I've done whole podcasts on the gentrification cycle. There's actually eight parts to the gentrification cycle. I won't get into that today because we'll go down a rabbit hole. But uh, obviously... When it comes to the concept of a location, a location which is going to gentrify can make a lot of money. Now, think about your suburbs where you live. If you cast your mind back 15 years and you thought of an ugly suburb that today is a nice place to live, that's pretty much the concept we're talking about. And... uh, Really, gentrification, if you like, when it comes to a marketplace can be broken down into a few sections. I like, for example, place gentrification, suburbs where everyone wants to go to. They are places. They are interesting areas for people to meet. They are full of life. And when you think about how a city works, there are so many different suburbs but only a few suburbs are actually places and places attract people. Uh, In Melbourne, you could say Fitzroy and Collingwood are place suburbs. They are gentrifying because of their, they are the place to go to. There are others that are emerging as the next Collingwood and Fitzroy. There are others in Brisbane emerging as the next new farm. Others in Sydney emerging as the next Surrey Hills. Your job is to work out where they are 
and use the next suburb effect, they are the next one to gentrify. So gentrification is a great location growth strategy. Uh, you can see it when it comes to its success. It's proven. There's a lot of evidence, if you like, that it works. Uh, if you go back and track the performance of a suburb that gentrifies, the evidence is unequivocal that you get a result from that investment strategy. If you look at monopolized markets, the evidence of land running out and prices going up, it's there. You can see it. It's how it works. If you go to oligopoly markets, you can see that they are the price they are because every 10 years, someone has got a shit ton more money and is prepared to pay for the best real estate in town. We know that there is also evidence that buying close to the beach or park or schools or green belts or uh, ed med belts or cultural belts drive location growth. We know this. It's there. You can look it up. You can Google it. It's as simple as that. And of course, in competition markets, which for many people they have to invest in, you use the principle of the other four. I'm going to a competition market and I'm going to look for the next suburb to gentrify. I'm going to go to a competition market. I'm looking for the next suburb to monopolize. That's how it works. So again, from a location point of view, you can break down the market. Uh, it's very important. Obviously, the caveat to what I'm talking about is real estate is very much a localized concept and when we talk about it being a localized concept it's very very critical because at the end of the day a local person needs to like the street and the property a local person not an interstate investor not a uh, investor a local person you're buying a property and someday someone has to pay more than you have paid for that real estate how is that going to happen well, it's usually going to happen from two metrics, the supply side and the demand side. The supply side is fairly simple. When land runs out, it goes up in value. And of course, uh, this pertains to even, for example, apartments and townhouses. Land runs out and certain areas have restrictions on what townhouses and apartments can go into that land then of course the supply of existing stock and any stock that can be squeezed into that system goes up in value so that's the supply side the demand side is the monopoly board people are trying to make more in this world not necessarily make less in this world and as we know australia's got a hungry population looking to come and live here so we get the population effect of people always looking to grow when people come and they want to grow they love for example affordable and aspirational areas they love to buy in those pockets and so we know that there's always a higher level of people 
to come and buy those properties. As areas uh, become more interesting to the marketplace or harder to get into, it's almost a effect where people clamor over the top of each other to get into those neighborhoods. They've got the best schools, they've got the best transport, best green space, best beaches, they have the best heritage. All of a sudden, you get this constant growth. And uh, what we want from real estate is not one cycle worth of growth or a fad. We don't want just to make a few bob and then it all end. We want constant levels of performance uh, and cycle after cycle after cycle. We want our real estate to be interesting to the market, not just the day we buy, but also into the many cycles we travel through. You can do this through controlling the location narrative. Anyway, I hope that has helped uh, you understand the location dynamics out there. I have mentioned this before. If it feels like a repeat, I apologize. But I really wanted to have the conversation today. I don't know. I just woke up with this urge. We've got to go to locations because I guess I'm seeing it off the back of the rental sort of booms at the moment, if you like. Is this a rental boom? It's crazy out there. Uh, I'm seeing like oligopoly markets, like the rents are just through the roof. Uh, Markets where they have reached monopolized state, the rents are just growing and growing and growing. So I guess I'm like super, super fascinated with the results of this stuff and results matter. And the results are happening, you know, in these locations, which I've certainly identified and broken down. Now, I will say that of the five locations I've talked about today, there are others which I have not talked about. Uh, Areas where you would not go, the wrong side of the tracks, the broken suburb, the neighbourhood effect location. Neighbourhood effect is just diminishing levels of interest in a neighbourhood. I haven't mentioned those locations there are four or five other locations where I could talk to you about them as places not to invest. They are broken window neighborhoods. They literally are not pleasant to invest in. From a location growth point of view, if you stick to my five and with competition markets really narrow it down, you're going to be home and host. If you go to a uh, dying town, a dying suburb, a neighbourhood effect suburb where the location is diminishing in value because its appeal has been broken, then you're going to run into trouble when it comes to real estate investment. And uh, there are plenty of lower, really just broken socioeconomic locations where Everyone's broke and they live there because they are what I call a no-choice location, a no-choice location. So it's very, very critical that uh, you play the game and hopefully I've given you a reminder. Today is a reminder. Yes. Sometimes I, you know, want to give you fresh content, but then I think, you know what, we should just remind people 
that sometimes understanding locations is critical to the game of property investment. You don't want to be the person that broke, that woke up 20 years from now owning real estate in a location that has done nothing or gone backwards over time. And of course, there are Ponzi locations, locations which are driven really by no reason other than uh, retirees just going there. That's the location. They're a retirement zone. Young people don't want to live there, but old people need to fall asleep and pass away in those suburbs or towns, dying locations, uh, Ponzi locations, the neighborhood effect locations, broken location, broken window locations. Jeez, man, you go to those neighborhoods and there's always one house which has just recently been burnt down. I wouldn't suggest going there. Uh, They are broken. So buying real estate is important. And, you know, I said this the other day, cheap is not a formula of economics. It's not. You want to control the supply side and the demand side, not just buy something because it's in your budget in a weird place. Weird locations, like Weirdo. We don't want these places in our portfolio. We want really mission-fit, healthy locations, aspirational suburbs, oligopoly suburbs, monopoly suburbs, emerging gentrification cycle suburbs and competition suburbs with the right elements where we're nabbing a bargain and it's going to uh, change before our eyes. All right, folks, that's it from me today. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. Rate the show, put a little uh, little review. We need reviews. Uh, hey, thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.